0: Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 9, let's give our attention to the reading of God's word tonight. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, uh, swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Lest you incur sin before him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You know, I've been thinking a lot in doing this series about my marriage, and I realize that I have what I think to be a very unique marriage, but also a similar marriage to other marriages that I know. Uh, I think my marriage is somewhat unique in the sense that I married someone who I... And, literally all flattery aside, this is a statement of fact, that I'm genuinely surprised agreed to marry me in the first place. Um, But in some senses, our our marriage is is similar in that we've struggled in the same way in which any couple struggles to learn to get along and figure out what it means to love someone. And of all those things that I've discovered about that love, it's this. Love is always a burden. As non-romantic as I'm sure that sounds... Love is always a burden because they ask things of you. The people that you love and who claim to love you back will always take something from you. Uh, And I've come to understand that, quite frankly, you don't have love without that. Uh, The idea of trying to love someone or be in a relationship with someone where there's no mutual sacrifice is a pipe dream. Um... We come to the point in the book of Leviticus where the action turns. Because prior to this time, God has been dealing with a people whom he has restored. He has granted unto them the visible manifestations in all of the sacrifices, in the priests, most specifically in the Day of Atonement that we talked about two weeks ago. He's established his love for his people so from chapter 19 on, he begins to give them examples of how they can love him back. Does that make sense? In other words, he comes and says that I want you to return the love that I've shown to me back to me. And the word that he uses to describe that return love is the word holiness. Holiness. Now, at that point, some of you just mentally checked out, and I want to stop you at that moment if I can. Because I recognize that that word is one of those religious words that tends to kind of be a bit of a downer. When we hear the word holiness, we oftentimes sort of immediately default to this idea of the medieval monk, you know, shrouded in a hood, perhaps. You know, he's been sitting in silence for a few days. He perhaps has a cat of nine tails that he's using to whip his back so that he can achieve this purity, this moral perfection. And for that reason, like any other burden that sort of gets thrown on our back, we want to try to get it off. (laughs) And so we struggle as Christians with this idea of holiness. What does holiness mean? How do I deal with it? And so what we do is we begin to make excuses. We begin to do our best to try to get out from under some of these things. And in my opinion, you miss the richness that's here in the book of Leviticus for us. So what I want to look at tonight, just for funsies, uh, is to see the three sort of kinds of ways in which people try to make excuses when they deal with this question of God's holiness and what he puts upon me. Three things. The first one is this. The first objection is, "Oh, Les, you've got to be kidding me you're really going to make some application out of this particular chapter? To be honest with you, there are a ton of really weird commands here. I read the ones that were the most tame, to be quite frank with you. And what people do is they say, look, we don't follow those anymore. Why should we worry about all these other commands that God gave to us? Now, look, I say this by way of review because in many ways I've been touching on this every week, but it's such a common objection that I feel like we can't revisit it enough times. Um, Look, generally, when we get to verses like what I read in verse 18 that say, love your neighbor as yourself, we're all about it. Two thumbs up, right? Love the book of Leviticus when it talks like that because I, I sort of connect with that. But then in verse 19, you suddenly hear that you're not supposed to breed two different kinds of cattle together. (laughs) And you suddenly are like, okay, I kind of liked verse 18. And then I got to verse 19 and I have no idea what to do with any of it. And for a lot of people, they leave the whole topic of Leviticus because of those things. Look, y'all. I simply want to pitch to you this, that do, do not write off the book of Leviticus just because you come to a command that looks weird. Because it's not as if Christian scholars, that this is the first time we've ever thought of that. <gasps> You're right, there's this weird thing about cattle. You know what, we should just ignore the whole thing. That's not the way we approach this. Because we've learned, hopefully this semester, to consider a handful of things. Let me do this by way of review, Okay. First of all, we know for a fact that certain commands in the book of Leviticus get expressly reiterated in the New Testament. Like, love your neighbor as yourself. For that reason, we still keep those commands. We don't throw those out. Secondly, we realize that there are some particular commands that come to a culture that was... um, Uh, more agrarian than ours you know what I mean when I say agrarian it was a a farming based sort of land based uh, type of culture and so therefore some of those things were applied to only an agrarian culture and so therefore we're not necessarily following the exact rule but the principle that exists behind the rule hold that thought we're going to come to a specific example of that in just a couple of minutes Thirdly, we found that some of the commands are explicitly tied up in a sacrificial system, okay, of sacrificing and animals and altars and stuff like that, that Jesus expressly came to fulfill. And so therefore we don't follow those anymore either. Fourth, we also see that some of these commands were sort of peculiar to Israel in terms of the witness they were supposed to give to the rest of the watching world especially when it came to mixing certain things. You know, there's a command later on that you're not supposed to mix two different kinds of thread so that if you're wearing tonight a poly-cotton blend, you could very easily be unclean, (laughs) right? But what God was saying was, is I want you to exemplify to the nations what it means to be set apart, what it means to be someone who's unlike the rest of the world, who is my own possession, But see, when Paul comes along in the New Testament, he says, look, these dividing walls that have separated you from those people are now actually gone. I actually want you to extend yourself into the lives of those people now. So we don't follow those either. Fifthly and finally, we find that some of the laws that are given were specifically tied to keeping the Jewish people out of some pagan religious practices. Some of you will notice that uh, there's some laws there in verse 28 about uh, getting tattoos on your body. That's not sort of a broad-scale sort of condemnation of tattoos, even though, you know, you can have your differing opinions about whether those are a good idea or not. But they were tied up, as it says there, for the dead. And so, therefore, they were laws that pertain specifically to pagan worship. Now, look, again, those things are somewhat of review to you. I simply want you to be encouraged that when we come to commands that are unusual, we don't throw them out just because they seem weird. We look and we consider what it is that God might have to say behind it. In other words, there's good reasons, y'all, that some commands are immediately applicable to us and some of them are not. Guess what you got to do? Brace yourself. you got to think about it. <gasps> right? God forbid I should ever have to do that when it comes to the Bible, right? For some people, they lop off huge portions of wonderful truths in Scripture that come from us in Leviticus because they don't know how to understand the simple principles that are behind applying it. Okay, so that's the first excuse that people offer up. Well, you know, these other weird commands, why should we follow it? Second excuse is one that's a little more common. The second excuse goes like this. Like, look, you know, I'm trying my best, Les. I'm trying to be holy. I mean, when it comes down to it, I mean, I'm a fairly devout person. I mean, I'm certainly not as bad as the next guy, right? And this is where it comes to, this kind of comes to the main point of tonight's discussion. I want to try for a little bit in this second point to convince you that when we say the word holiness, we are not talking about some abstract sort of feeling of moral purity. Holiness kind of feels like to us this sort of attitude of properness, You know, where we're standing sort of very carefully. We're being very careful in the way that we say things. Maybe we speak very slowly. That's the holy person that we know, right? Look, y'all, the Bible's understanding of holiness is not simply an individual thing. And most of us think of it as being purely between me and my soul and God. Look, y'all, when you begin to all of a sudden unpack how Leviticus unpacks holiness you're going to find that it has everything to do with your neighbor look y'all i don't want you thinking about holiness as it as it exists somewhere in your mind or your heart or wherever you place it holiness in the book of leviticus has everything to do with your neighbor in the hebrews 12:14 there's a very gripping passage it says strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We won't see the Lord without this holiness. But notice how the writer of Hebrews qualifies it. It's talking about peace with everyone. In other words, he connects our struggle for holiness for how you get along with other people. Do you follow me on this? <laughs> well, A lot of times when I talk to you, your struggle for holiness is wrapped up in your willpower that you can uh, dredge up to have a quiet time. Uh, the the resistance that you can sort of well up inside your soul so that you don't follow the way of the crowd and do what you know is morally correct. Okay, those are good things. Two thumbs up for those things are very important. But far more important is how you treat other people. Because when it comes to holiness, that's what God is looking at. And he gives us five things that we need to consider in this second point. The first thing he says is, I want you to be holy in your possessions. There's this little verse there in verses 9 and 10 that talk about these gleanings. Okay, Remember that we're talking about an agrarian society. And all it was saying was that when you plow your field, don't go all the way to the edges. But I want you to leave a little bit of a rim around what you harvest so that poor people can come up and actually take it and feed themselves. Isn't that interesting? Now granted, we don't live in an agrarian society, but you can see the principle behind it. God is looking and saying that I want you in your lifestyle to deliberately plan to serve the poor. In other words, I want there to be situations in which you create margins in your family, in your business, in your interactions with friends that are certain to leave something for the poor. This is the reason, by the way, why we have our mercy ministries that Whitney came up and announced to you. To give you an opportunity to go and to carve out on the rims of your life a margin that exists purely for the poor. To begin the process of looking and seeing holiness be about the lives of other people. That's your possessions. Secondly, it also says that you're to be holy with your words. Look at verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 say that there are two places where honesty is absolutely paramount. That is, in your business and secondly, in the law courts. It says that we're not to steal or we're not to deal falsely. And he says, in other words, to love your neighbor, you have to tell the truth in all of your transactions. Truth has to be at the center of it all. And unfortunately, for many of you, you're just a little bit too young to realize how much temptation there's coming for you when you graduate from this place? Um, I'm old enough to, to have realized even myself, even in my own vacation, that life presents you, an almost unlimited ways to cheat. It just does, y'all, and it's all around us, and it's absolutely destructive. I hope that some. Let me see if I can give an example of this. I hope that some of you accounting majors. Realize that the latest problem we've had in our uh, uh, um, economy with the whole housing bubble, you do realize that was 100% an honesty thing. <laughs> the housing bubble and the real estate crisis, and you, you don't have to have an economics master's to get this. Look, y'all, the lenders were lying to the buyers about how much they could uh, afford to their houses, and the buyers were actually lying to the lenders about how much, they, well, how much house they could afford. It was all deception. And guess what? Now we're all suffering economically for those lies. In other words, God is saying, look, whether you realize it or not, telling the truth is a life and death matter. And if you don't think so, talk to some of last year's graduates who still have not been able to find jobs in this economy. Why? Because suddenly everybody got scared because everyone was lying. God says, your holiness is not going to be like that. I want you to tell the truth, whether it's in the law court or whether it's your business. You know, back in those days, they didn't have DNA, evidence, and cameras. The eyewitnesses were everything. And suddenly, when you lose that aspect of a society, you don't have a society anymore. Be holy in your possessions. Be holy in your words. Thirdly, though, be holy in your actions. Verses 13 and 14. Look at that. And I want you to underline the word oppression. The word oppression. Oppression. The word oppression in the Old Testament is a big word. We're actually going to return to it in a couple of weeks when we talk about the year of Jubilee. The word oppression is simply nothing more than not giving the appropriate amount of wage for the appropriate amount of work. In other words, in that society, there was this thing called day workers. There were people that sort of hung around businesses and would stand around so that they could get hired for the day. And if their boss refused to pay them at the end of the day, or if they didn't pay them what they agreed upon, God looks and says, employer, you just oppressed that person. And you know what? You ought not do it. That's not the way we work. We give someone their wages. You know what this means? It means that God says, I have a heart for socially vulnerable people you got to realize, y'all, that our society is full of socially vulnerable people that our laws oftentimes don't actually get to to protect. But God says, my people will be holy. And by holy, it means that they're going to be the ones who are establishing systems that avoid marginalizing people to where they can't get the things that they need to live and have joy in life. My people aren't going to do that. Look, y'all, oppression ends up being the thing that you did if you didn't honor your word. Look, I know this feels very distant for a lot of people uh, to look at. But you know, in, in verse 14, it talks about cursing the deaf even though they can't hear. Or actually putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person even when they can't see. Do you know what God is saying there? In that command, he's saying, look, I want you to be the same person in your private life as you are in your public life. You know, if a person is deaf and you curse them, they can't hear. But guess what? I know what you actually intended to do. And God says, I don't want you to do that. A blind person can't see the stumbling block that you put in front of them for them to trip over. But I don't want you to be that way. I want you to be the kind of person who is the same on the inside as you are on the outside. It's integrity. Integrity. The word integrity comes from the word integer. What's an integer? It's a whole number. Jesus says, I want you to be the ones that are whole to be that kind of person where what's done as secret is the same thing that's done outside. Look, y'all, instinctively we sometimes think that coming to college is that moral parenthesis. Where we look and say, well, it doesn't really matter how I'm living now. One day I'll clean it up. And God looks and says, no, you won't. Because you're establishing for yourself patterns of relationship in your actions that get difficult to break out of. So we see all these things, Right? We look and we see possessions, holiness in your words, holiness in your actions. Fourthly, holiness in your judgments. Verses 15 and 16 put us back in the law court, don't they? And again, you'll see how, hard, how much of a temptation this is going to be for you. <clears throat> when you begin to realize how many moral conundrums that you're going to find yourself in when you graduate. You know, nobody's really going to check me if I pad that expense account just a little bit. You know, honestly, the truth is all the rest of the employees here have found their ways around these certain reports. In other words, there will always be a forever temptation for you to flex the rules ever so slightly, either for personal relationships or even for your own personal gain. Look, I've been shocked how much of my job as a parent is 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 to administer justice it's remarkable how often it happens I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happens <laughs> in the next 10 minutes You never can tell my children are here but i can i can always remember uh, how many times it happens in a day when my children will come and be like daddy she hit me right this happens on a regular basis and of course the other person says exactly what you'd expect them to say after that which is what she hit me first and suddenly you find yourself, as a parent, having to mete out justice. Why? Look, y'all, there is something instinctive in the heart of a person that wants to say, it's just not fair. And what I get nervous about is that during your time in your four years here at Old Miss, you're going to somehow be fooled that the world outside of this place is fair. And you know what? It's not And for the person who makes the daily decisions to say, I am not going to do something that will keep justice and fairness from coming to any quarter of God's image as it comes to him in humanity that would bring injustice in their life. I'm not going to do that. God says, that's how my people will be marked out, by a sense of proper justice. Finally, and fifthly, He looks and says, as if that wasn't enough, that every bit of this has to come from your heart. (laughs) In other words, he looks and says, when there is something between you and another person, this is what the verse says there at the end, I want you to go and talk to that person and work it out. That's what verse 16 is all about. And verse 17, don't hate your brother in your heart, but reason frankly with your neighbor. Don't you love that? The book of Leviticus, God is coming and telling your people, say, Look, I don't want there to be a bunch of animosity between you and your neighbor. You go work it out with them and get that bad attitude inside of your heart out. Deal with these things. In other words, the Bible is saying that you need to learn to deal honestly with people. Stop talking about them behind their backs, say it to their face, for goodness sakes. This is what holiness is. You know, a lot of times <clears throat> you'll find yourself uh, amazed to really consider what God is asking of His people. If you really look at it, what is He saying? Holiness, basically, when you're dealing with your neighbor, is number one, to share. <laughs> number two, to tell the truth. Number three, to help the weak. Number four, to be fair. And number five, to talk it out. I love this thought that holiness could be articulated probably by my five-year-old in the back of the room right now. Things which from the very earliest of ages we understand. And yet the older that we get, strange how gray the black and white gets, doesn't it? Look, y'all, when God looks and talks about holiness, he says, I'm talking about how you deal with your neighbor. And so look at those five things and see whether or not my life is marked by holiness. Which brings me to the last question. Because to be honest with you, the last excuse in many ways is the one that really gets on you. Because my guess is, if you're anything like me, you're not terribly comforted now. I won't lie to you. Those five things are heavy. They're a big deal. And honestly, you're not, you're not paying attention if you're not looking at least somewhere in that and saying, ooh, that makes me a little uncomfortable Look, and so what we end up doing is we start asking questions of distraction. And we oftentimes will say the third excuse, which is this. Yeah, but who is my neighbor? I mean, you know, we're supposed to love our neighbor. Yeah, but who is that? You know, I don't really know who that person is. Ah, that's a very familiar question, isn't it? Look, every commentator that I read said that the parable of the, of the good Samaritan is the New Testament complement to this passage. In other words, if you want to understand what Leviticus 19 is saying here, go look at this wonderful story about a religious scholar who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And he said to Jesus, you know, I just kind of want to understand exactly what God requires of me. In other words, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus looks and says, it's very simple. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. And the religious person suddenly begins to feel a weight of that. And so he says to himself, well, and who is my neighbor? You hear the excuse? And suddenly Jesus tells a very interesting story about a Jewish person, someone from this religious ruler's own ethnicity, who was robbed and beaten and left beside the road for dead. Meanwhile, his own people come and pass by him. Two religious leaders, <laughs> talk about an implicating story, Two religious leaders pass the guy by and don't lift a finger to help him. But then all of a sudden, you know who comes along at the end? A Samaritan. Now this may not sound like much to you, but a Samaritan to a Jewish person was one of those people. You know, we don't mix with them people, right? Those are people that we stay away from. They're half breeds. They're not honestly don't worship on the same mountain we do. There was tons of conflict between the two. And guess what? He's the one that stops and helps the person. It's a powerful story that I think says at least two things to us. And I'll finish with these thoughts. The first thing it says to us is Jesus looks and says, I want you to know that whatever law that you read back in Leviticus is nothing compared to what I'm bringing. I'll be honest with you. I'd rather live under Leviticus 19 than what Jesus is saying in that parable. Because you know what he's saying. He's looking to basically saying, look, you are not allowed to simply help people who are like you. You need to go and extend yourself in the life of people that actually are different from you. And actually people that formerly you didn't really like that much. Secondly, I also want you to give in that sense to people who don't even deserve it. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards said that we absolutely have to do this. You know, there's one of that sense in which if we waited, we think about if uh, Jonathan Edwards said one time that if um. If God had waited to give his salvation to those who deserved it, he wouldn't have made the trip (laughs) to come and die for our sins. And then finally, he looks and says, I want you to learn to give to other people until it burdens you. We talk about all this bearing one another's burdens. And we look and say to ourselves, well, you know, when I get more comfortable in life, then I'll go and bear others' burdens. But you see, if you're comfortable while you're doing it, it's not a burden. (laughs) Jesus is coming and looking and saying, I'm calling my people to inconvenience themselves, like a lot, for the sake of their neighbor, for the sake of the person whom they actually right now might even tell you that they don't like, to extend themselves into the life of that other person. I'll be honest with you, when I'm reading Leviticus, I feel like I'm a little behind. (laughs) When I read Jesus, I feel like I'm cut off at the knees. But there's one little hint in that story to how I think that we find the real power to holiness. In many ways, this is kind of the the big point. Because did you notice how that story got set up? Remember, Jesus is talking to a Jewish person. And in the story that he tells, he puts a Jewish person beaten up by the side of the road. Think of it if Jesus had put it in the other way around. What if Jesus had said, you know, once upon a time, there was a Samaritan laying on the side of the road who had gotten beaten up. And all these Jews walked past him and they just ignored him. And you should have done better. And so you need to be nice to Samaritans. Let's pray. That would have been a very different story. But you notice what Jesus does? And it's a very subtle but I think extremely powerful twist. He says, I'll tell you who I'm going to put in the side of the road is the Jewish person. In other words, he wants for this religious leader who's asking this question about who is my neighbor to say, look, the only way in which you're going to love people, the way in which that Samaritan and my little story will, is if you understand that you are on the side of the road in a ditch. That the only way in which you're going to survive this life is if someone comes along who you formerly either did not know or, dare we say, was your enemy extends themselves into your life purely by grace. You see what he's saying to the the religious leader? He's saying, because until you begin to see God as being in the same place as the Samaritan, you'll never be holy. Look, there's a lot of reactions that I get whenever we talk about the topic of holiness in RUF. For some people, it's sort of a little bit of a a panic. You're right, need to work a little bit harder this week. For others of us we give up. We look and say, "You know what? I've been trying this for years. I'm done with this." And you leave Christianity never to come back. Can I just beg you not to do either of those things tonight? Instead, what I want you to look into is to the thing that God says over and over again, "I want you to be holy for I am holy, for I am the Lord your God." Do you hear what he keeps saying to his people at the end of every one of these sections? I am the Lord who bought you, who saved you, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you into restoration. I'm the Lord your God here who's bringing healing to you. I love you. Don't you understand the images that I've told you back on the day of atonement? And on the basis of that love and on the basis of the joy that comes from that love, I want you to love me back. And the way I want you to love me back is I want you to go show the same grace to your neighbor that I showed to you. Put yourself in the road and see Jesus coming by as one who formerly could very well be thought of as an enemy because he's so threatening. And see him coming and scooping you up and actually extending his grace into your life. And it'll overflow with a different way of looking at life. I had a friend of mine a number of years ago who found out that he was going to receive an inheritance like a big inheritance, a very big inheritance. And he and his brand new wife actually transformed before my very eyes. You see, prior to hearing about the inheritance, they were always a little bit of a nervous couple, uh, always constantly uh, uh, going up and down with the uh, uh, decisions to make about each other and about the future and about how they were going to afford this. Was his job going to be able to cover this? But suddenly, when he got the news about the inheritance, they were the most carefree couple. Why? You see, they were able to free themselves from the tyranny of their money when they suddenly knew how rich they had become. You see the point? You will have a life of holiness and goodness to your neighbor only to the degree that you see the God of the universe extending himself into your life by grace. Holiness by grace. Consider that to be an invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you grant for us, by grace, the knowledge of that truth. Lord, these these commands for holiness are beyond us. They are weighty to us. And, Lord Jesus, what you asked of us about loving our neighbor seems even more remote. But if that's the case, if that is truly the case then all it's telling us is the fact that we don't know how much you love us and we don't know how wonderful your grace is, how amazing your grace is like we sang tonight. And so we pray that in this place as we begin to contemplate the weightiness, the burden of our neighbor, that we would always do so with an eye to you we would see you in our in, working on us and working for us before we ever extend our lives into someone else's. Would you do that? Because, Lord Jesus, it would be transformational. It would be like finding out that we had won an inheritance and would never have to worry about money again. Lord Jesus, if you would do that, you would grace us with something wonderful. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.